So it was the, the 19th century painter, Caspar David Friedrich, uh, and he was, he was accused of, of not really liking people generally. And he was quoted to reply, you call me a misanthrope uh, because I avoid society. And you err, I love society, uh, yet in order to not hate people, I must avoid their company. Uh, he was a German, so that might explain some of that. I don't know. But um, we ourselves do kind of find ourselves in a... You want me to do squats? What? Oh, kids? Yeah, we don't like children. Send them away. Thank you, Bill. That's one way of putting it. No, that's, that's not true. We wow. love children. They've convinced me. Children are adorable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, so liking people, not liking people, how, how relevant, how timely. Um, but so, uh, so our modern American culture is, is kind of interesting. It's, it's unusual in, in the entire sweep of, of human history because we do so value our, our rugged individualism. And it's an odd focus because generally speaking, most cultures have been much more collectivistic than ours. And the general uh, struggle of collectivist cultures is trying to spend all this energy trying to find a way to force trick or, or, or just frighten people into living peaceably with one another. And, 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 and we in our Western brilliance have circumvented it by the problem. We have peace by not actually living together. We, we live behind locked doors in the glass bubbles of our houses. We go to work by hopping behind the locked doors and glass bubbles of our cars. We drive there. Hopefully our work is a place where if the business model allows that the general public is not allowed inside. And then we return to our locked houses via our locked cars to live our lives. And if we, if we feel some kind of need for human interaction, we might post a picture of our dinner to Facebook. So that's, that's not in the grand sweep of history, terribly normal, but that's how we've solved the problem because we seem to have clued in, at least implicitly, to, to just how the, the, the radical selfishness of humanity separates us from one another. We, we do things to one another, to the people we love, to the people we don't know, that just makes living with them loving them, trusting them, exceedingly difficult. And, and some people have tried to figure out tons of different ways to make that work, tons of different programs. And by and large, we've just kind of said, not for me. So that's interesting. Uh, but there's a sacrifice to that. We, we miss out on community. We miss out on relationships. And, and at times, we even miss out on our family. So we are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, to, to refresh our memories, Nehemiah, Jew living in, in Persia, he gets news that Jerusalem and the people there are in a sorry state. The walls are torn down, the gates burned. Uh, it's a monument to, to past failure. Nothing is going right. And so he's heartbroken by this. He, he prays, he fasts, he mourns, he plans, he waits. When the time is right, he goes to his boss, the king of Persia, requests assistance, receives it. Um, goes to Jerusalem, assesses the situation on the ground, gives a rousing speech, let's build a wall, the crowd goes wild. Um, and so, so that's where we're at, that's where we're picking up now. Um, we're going to read all of chapter 3 and the first six verses of chapter 4. Um, and so get comfortable. 
it's going because chapter three is basically just a big list of who did what work on the wall, and um, so we're going to be able to critique my Hebrew pronunciation. Um, but but so get comfortable, but also listen for details because there are there are things inside that list that are relevant to to our larger conversation. So. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper after we've read. So, Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Pesea, and Meshulam, the son of Besedea, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Merothonite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them Jedidiah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Harim and Hashub, the son of Pehaf Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of the Has district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanua repaired the Valley Gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. Malkaja, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the Dung Gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Selah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down to the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the Hes district of Beth Zer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the Has district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the Has district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabaj, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding areas, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress, and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, and the servants living in, on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, repaired. 
After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired opposite another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchajah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were, we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The wall was joined together because the people were joined together. It was a physical result of a spiritual reality. The wall came together because the people did. Um, the, we, we see in this story that these people faced with the, the exact same human condition that we are, that, that people are incredibly difficult to get along with, were able to, in this moment, come together in God's purpose and, and do the task before them. And uh, so what we read here offers just a number of insights. I'm, I'm not making a big point out of any of them just yet, but I just want to look at a couple of the things that we can pull out from this text. And the first is, is that when people join together in God's purpose, diverse groups of people come together. Uh, and we also see that, that the pursuit of God's purpose provokes a world that cannot understand and cannot accept that purpose. And, and lastly, that, that pursuing God's purpose naturally directs us to direct our petitions to God. So I, I, I want to come and, and, and touch on all those points and then at sort of just the, the surface level seeing, okay, what did we see in the story? And then bring it all back around and, and look at it at a, at a deeper and more present time level. Um, but, but just to start with, um, I want to, to look at the first of those observations that, that God's purpose joins diverse groups of people together. So in, in chapter 3, in that big long list, what, what did we read? What did we hear? Um, before I get too far into that, though, I, I kind of want to talk about just what, what chapter 3 was doing. It's, in its simplest terms, it was a, a map. Uh, they're, they're talking about the repairs. Who did what? They start at the temple in the north end of Jerusalem, snake their way counterclockwise down. It's sort of a hyper-elongated oval, the city at this point, all the way back around till we end right back at the temple and the priests working. So that's what's described. And, and it's interesting because it's not just a, a list of, of, of donors who pledged to fund a foot of the Jerusalem wall and, and so ended up, luckily, with a, with a biblical plaque um, to their effort. But... Was, was rather a, a, a grimy and bruised-knuckled, uh, calloused account of the people who, who fortified what was in the physical sense literally the last final and, and only hill God's people had to fall back to. Uh, we, we know Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem because things were bad, but I don't know if we have an image of what that looked like. Um, and, and the best con uh, contrast I can say is 
if we think about Jerusalem in, in, in the Jewish Golden Age, in the time of Solomon, the city sprawls out over two hills, an eastern one and a western one, and then there's a valley between them, and there's the Temple Mount in the northeast, and it snakes down to the springs south of it. And in Nehemiah's time, when he comes into post-exile Jerusalem, just the eastern hill is populated, and a fragment of it at that. The valley, the western hill, it, the ruins are still there, but nobody's living there. Uh, so Nehemiah's wall isn't rebuilding Solomon's giant kingdom. They are repairing what's there and building new walls, holding the 30% of the city that people still live in. Um, so that's, that's what we're seeing. So this is... This is um, this is a matter of, of haste and, and, um, and, and severity. So these people in this list that we read, you, you might have picked some of these out. I'll just sort of shout out to you what, what I noticed in the list. Who was working on this wall? Well, priests, the high priest, in fact, the, the, the most important guy in the city is, is lifting bricks and the priests beside him and the, the Levites, the honored tribe as well. And you have merchants, you have goldsmiths, you have perfumers, you have women. You have people of every social class and standing building this wall together. You have the people who live in the city uh, and you have people from all of the surrounding countryside. You have people who don't live in Jerusalem coming to Jerusalem, leaving their families behind and building this wall with their brothers and sisters. So we see a diverse group of people coming together to pursue God's purpose. We see, in short, what is a borderline alarming amount of diversity for the highly stratified ancient world. Um, but somehow the differences between these people, the significant vast differences, seem to matter less as they're pursuing God's purpose. The wall comes together because they do. So that's the first observation I just want to say, okay, we see that in the text. The next one was the concept of how, how God's purpose provokes the world, which cannot understand or accept that purpose. So th this wall building, this, this flurry of activity definitely catches the attention of their opponents, that, that alliance of people who weren't terribly interested in seeing a, a risen Jerusalem come back onto the scene. And so, so what did we see happen? Well, Nehemiah rolls into town, lays low for three days, um, you know, sees what's going on, gives a speech, bam. Um, no environmental impact study, they're building a wall. And, and, and so how do their enemies respond to this? They're like, oh, they're, they're doing it. So Sanballat grabs his army and rolls up outside the gates of the city, or what's left of them, um, and begins to loudly um, begin to humiliate and threaten the people of Jerusalem. Because an army is not subtle. You, you don't roll up to somebody's city with a literal army and start insulting them. That's not a veiled threat. It's a threat threat. It's, oh, it's a sh nice city. It's a shame if we killed you in it. Um, so so that's, that's what they're experiencing. And what does he say? What, what, how does Sanballat, what, what words does he use? What, what's in his heart as he does this? And we know he's angry. Uh, the Bible tells us that. Um, and he says, well, what are these Jews doing? Is this, is this third-string squad of butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers really going to build a wall? Um, do, do you have any idea how beyond you this task is? You, you think it's going to come up in a day? Uh, how are you going to bring these burned stones back to life? And his, his henchman, his toady Tobias next to him, is like, yeah, good one, Sanballat. If, if a fox jumped up on their wall, it'd fall over. 
the wall. I mean, not the fox. LOL. Um, and so, so they, that's that's what they say. They're 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 coming up and they're heaping the scorn on them. And so. I want us to see that there's a couple layers, at least, of motivation in play here. There's there now. There's a surface-level political one that's very obvious. These people do not want Jerusalem to come back. But what's interesting is they don't come up and say, "Guys, it would be geopolitically inconvenient for us if Jerusalem regained its former regional prominence, so we are against this referendum." Um, but that's not what happens. There's there is a deeper level in play here beyond. Just, just the, the surface level one. And you can see that just based off of what Sanballat says. He doesn't come up and, and, and say, you know, this is a bad idea. I don't like this. This is in our interest. Or he doesn't roll up and kill them. He looks at this. He looks at this group of perfumers and priests building a wall and says, this makes no sense. This is crazy. I do not understand this. There's... There's... Um, it's, it's not just that they're at cross purposes. He see them, sees them at, at opposite ends of reality. So he, he looks at this situation and does not understand it and implicitly rejects it. So that, that's, that's again, that's just the point I want to make here. The world sees God's purpose and it says, I don't get this. I reject it. It makes me angry. Uh, to the third point. Pursuit of God's purpose naturally directs us to direct our petitions to God. That is a mouthful. <laughs> so by that I just mean that, okay, we have the people building the wall. And they know they are not professional architects. I, I don't know about you, but if, if I want to know that I'm not a professional plumber, I just have to start working on my pipes. I know nobody needs to tell me. Um, and, and, and these people, as they're building this wall, they do not need anybody to tell them that this task is bigger than they are, that they are not professional wall builders, that they are not architects, siege engineers, that the, uh, the coalition is fragile, that there's a ton of rubble, or that, that this is something that in and of themselves they are not equipped or optimized to do. Um, and Tandalot helps them, he reminds them, he comes all the way from the south to yell this at them so they can all hear that they stink. Um, and it's, it is crazy. You know, they know that this doesn't make sense, but they're doing it anyway. Why? By the, yards, by the world's yardstick, this does make no sense. But it would be equally nonsensical to pursue God's purpose using the world's yardstick. Of course it doesn't add up. It shouldn't. It would make no sense if, if God's purpose evened out with the world's wisdom because the world's wisdom, is, as we saw in point two, is naturally opposed and does not understand God's purpose. We get that you don't get it. By your wisdom, we don't get it. So Nehemiah doesn't say, well, actually, Sanballat, I've run the numbers, and this is why it makes sense. This is why you should agree with me. He doesn't. He doesn't pull out the world's yardstick to do that. He doesn't even take the world's yardstick and try to brain him over the head with it. He directs his petition to God because Nehemiah says, God, this is about you. This is not about me. This is not about us. This is about your purpose and other people's response to it. And everybody on the field that day was responding to God's purpose, whether they acknowledged it or not, positively or negatively. Everybody in that area at the time Sandal is hurling those insults is responding to what God is doing. The people building the wall are obeying. The people uh, hurling insults were rejecting. So, 
So that's what we see. And so now Nehemiah's prayer itself is a classic and fine example of Jewish imprecatory vindication prayer, <laughs> which is another mouthful. Um, and, and so what, what's interesting about it is, and, and, and this theme, this idea of Nehemiah saying, God, this is about you, not about us, is, is strengthened in this because Nehemiah is not saying, God, they have hurt our feelings greatly. Punish them with punches from the sky. Um, he says, God, in the hearing of your people, they have disparaged you. They have dishonored your great name and your holy purpose. Act. Respond to that. Act powerfully. Show your people. Vindicate your greatness before your own people and the people who've disparaged you. Give them exactly what they're threatening us with so that the world will know you are God. And, and that's, again, that is God-focused. That's not about me, that's not about my feelings. It's not even so much about them. It's about God acting to vindicate his greatness. And you might praise God, do something about the evil around us. Do something about the, the radical selfishness in the human heart that causes people to reject you so that your name will be established. So that's what we see happening. And, and it's worth noting that... Nehemiah especially is not an opt-out mystic. He's not. Uh, he's one of the most direct and and actionable guys in the Bible. He 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 does things. <laughs> he doesn't just say things. He he makes things happen. Uh, he gets his hands dirty. So I, I want to draw a distinction between you know people ignoring reality, going around on them, saying, "Well, this is about God. I'm not going to do anything." Nehemiah is the the first uh, one to to make things happen, but he recognized that at that point, at that moment, he could have pulled out his, his Persian trump card and said, the king says I get to build a wall, but he didn't. He says, this is about people's response to God, ours and Sanballat's. So that's the third point. Now, Nehemiah's story continues beyond this chapter, um, but I want us, at least for this moment, to sort of step back and then step forward into um, the, the larger truths that, that we see playing out beyond this specific historical instance. Um, just because at this point, it would actually be really easy to have me say a prayer, uh, sing a song, and have all of us go our separate ways and draw exactly the wrong idea about what this is about. The people united, they built a wall, and you can too if you just believe in the power of the human heart. Um, you know, kumbaya plays, and, and, and we all believe again. And, um, and, and, I, and, and maybe that, that would work for us. I don't know how far we would get on that particular tank of gas. But the, 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 the mind of the modern man, the, 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 the sand ballots of our world, or even the, even the, the semi-sand ballots of our world, are, if we just copy and drop that story into our modern times, are going to have a number of objections to those, those three things we've seen. They're going to say, well, does that add up? Does that hold outside of the carefully constructed confines of the story that your Bible tells us? So I kind of want to look at those points, and I mean, just, just the first one even, that, that God's purpose brings diverse people together, and, and a lot of people in our modern time are going to say, really, you buy that. Looking at religious persecution, at oppression, at superiority, at sectarian violence, you're going to tell me that God's purposes bring people together. Okay. Uh, sure. And, 
and that's, that's, that's going to raise the skepticism of, of our friends, our neighbors, the people we love and care about, because they, they sincerely believe that religions don't bring people together, that they drive them apart. And then they'll point to our modern, pluralistic, quite secular society and say, see, look at us. We have got this diversity thing figured out. This is how we bring people together. We have people of multiple religions living in this country. We have people of multiple races. We have people of multiple belief systems. We've got this figured out. Now, without at this moment directly answering the uh, the challenge about you know how, how religion drives people apart, because that's there's there's some traction to that, and we'll talk about that a little later. I will I will look at the positive case and just say, okay, our modern pluralistic society has got diversity figured out. Does it? We are allowed to marry whoever we want and go where we wish and and say what we believe, but. Statistically speaking, we marry inside our social classes and our races, and, and we find a neighborhood that matches that. Um, so how, how integrated, how, how successful has our modern society been at bringing us together, really? Um, our college campuses are actually intentionally resegregating themselves in certain areas just because that's what people want. Uh, and, and, and in these same college campuses, they have grief counselors ready to assist bereaved students who are experiencing genuine emotional turmoil at the fact that they're aware somewhere on campus someone who politically disagrees with them was allowed to speak. Um, now, that, that might say something about how good a job our, our colleges are doing, but, but more than that, it, it, it shows that our society is creating people who, who are coming to the world and coming to this diversity of opinion and, and are experiencing pain and struggle in it. So I don't know if the alternative track, the alternative vision for human unity that modern society is presenting is really panning out as much as, as we would like it to. Um, the, the, you know, the, the discussion of us living in our glass bubbles holds true for us because we can say, well, all truth claims are valid. And uh, this is my truth. You know, the Bible is my truth. This, something else is your truth, and that's okay. And we can get away with that in a modern society, whatever the the, the logical instability of that position by simple virtue of the fact that we don't live together, we don't spend time together. We've looked at the apparent impossibility of living together peacefully and have solved the problem by saying everybody gets to be the captain of their own little ship of reality and hopefully nobody bumps into anybody else. So, faced with that, we have to ask, well, do we have diversity figured out? Have, has our pluralistic society solved that? Um, because at the end of the day, we can believe unselfish things, and we can espouse unselfish principles, but when the rubber meets the road, we cannot and do not consistently lead unselfish lives. Um, that's, just, that's just not how these things play out, at least in my experience, because at some point, our high moral principles and what our hearts want come into conflict, and I think I can speak from experience to say I know which one mostly wins. Um, so, we have yet to devise any ism, individualism, collectivism, progressivism, whatever, that has found a way to cure the radical selfishness inside the human heart for the separation that we experience as people one with another. And, and I think that's where this story and the Bible as a whole comes in, because that separation we experience with one another is symptomatic, it's secondary. Because apart from that and prior to that, and, and the cause of that is that we have a prior relationship that has experienced separation and is our first relationship. It's the relationship with our creator. It's our relationship with God. 
and, 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 and the root is still the same. Our, our radical selfishness has separated us from relationship with God. We've broken that relationship, and as a result, we naturally experience broken relationships one with another and with creation itself. Uh, and so, perhaps uh, the best way to, to look at that is through the lens of Scripture, and I think Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 22, might say it best. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So, if, if we take this at face value, and, and I think our hearts might be inclined to, is we just look around the world around us, the, the human condition is that we have rejected reality. That God is God and we're not. And, and we've, we've abrogated, we've taken for ourselves the seat of judgment saying, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. This is reality, this is not reality. This is my truth. We've, we've taken God's seat, we've ousted him from it in our hearts, which is perhaps the most radical selfishness of all, and, and, and we've wrapped ourselves in this bubble of, of personalized falsehoods. And, and so we ask, well, how, why can't people just get along? Well, picture a world where a bunch of fragile egos have wrapped themselves in glass bubbles that are meant to preserve their perfect image of themselves, and they're all moving along, hoping nobody breaks, bunches into each other or the truth accidentally and shatters the whole house of cards. Of course we can't get along. We're, we're, we're tensely, vindictively holding on to our, our preferred image of ourselves where we've put ourselves in the place of God and we choose right from wrong for ourselves. That, that's a recipe for conflict. <laughs> I couldn't make up one better than that. Of course we're miserable. Of course we don't like each other. You might find out about me. I might find out about you. Locked doors seem like a good idea. Or at the very least, just a, a collectivist system that keeps us from talking about anything serious or, or channels our destructive tendencies towards the guys in the other city. Who knows? But at the end of the day, human, human purpose is to willfully abuse, distort, and invert the truth. And we are threatened by God's purpose, which reveals truth. God's truth is everything that the, the worst parts of ourselves, the deepest places in our hearts, hate and fear will come to pass. And so, from the source of that, we can see why perhaps, indeed, the world cannot understand or accept the purpose of God. And, and so, but even if we accept all these, and we say, okay, I, I see where the argument is going there. What of it? Because at present, it seems all I've argued us into is all right. Let us let us. The, the biblical truth of the day is that people suck. Um, how ennobling! Thank you. <laughs> I'll take the lies, please. Um, and 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 if the story stopped there, we would indeed be left in that unenviable position. Incidentally, it wouldn't necessarily change the fact that that were true. Um, but fortunately, the story does not stop there. Somehow, we as humans intuitively desire companionship and relationship and love at a level that we have never actually experienced. 
somehow we know uh, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, that there should be a level of certainty, of, of fidelity, of, of, of faithfulness that we just haven't experienced yet. And so we have to ask why. Why is there this hole in us that nothing in the world has been able to fill? And, 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 we, and it's a love we've never had. It's a, it's a friendship we've never had because if we look honestly at ourselves, we have to admit that that level of love, that level of friendship is something that we could never deserve, that we are incapable of earning just because of who we are and how we behave towards those people we would like to love, have love us at that level. And yet the want is still there. Nehemiah prayed for God to respond to the lies being spread about the truth, that, that God was God and, and we are not. Um, he prayed for God to answer the evil in the world around him, to address the radical selfishness in the human heart that to this day led and leads to misery, conflict, and separation. Now, like I said, Nehemiah goes on. I, I won't spoil what happens next there, but I will say that God has answered that prayer of Nehemiah's. Um, he has answered our similar prayers. Um, Sanballat, he, he looked at the Jews building the wall and said, guys, you can't do that. And he was right. Prophetically, despite himself, despite his blasphemy and his, his generally miserable demeanor, Sanballat was right in the sense that this task was beyond them, that, that those people could not do that thing in and of themselves. And, and we, as we look at the larger issue, if we look to our modern enlightened beliefs, or even if we look to our good Christian morals, TM, um, to, to somehow address that deeper core issue of the separation that exists between us because of, of just who we are in our hearts, um, we can see that the sand ballots of our time will rightly conclude, you cannot do that. That's not something that you're going to be able to address. And, and it's all very well and good to, to um, make fun of sand ballot now that he's very long gone and dead. Um, but those questions, that issue, that, that challenge implicit to, to this church and us individually as believers still stands. You can't do it. And it's easy to get high and mighty and angry about that when it's coming from somebody who's angry, but the fact is, is those very same questions are asked by people who maybe they're presenting as angry, but many are just heartbroken. The people who are honestly questioning, because there are people who look in the mirror and when they pray to God, they're not pointing at other people and saying, God, do something about the radical selfishness in that guy or in that city or in that country. They're saying, God, do something about me. Do something about this. That is a, that is a prayer I have had to pray. That is a prayer I have had God answer because... Because we can look at the rubble in our own lives created by what we've done and there isn't an ism that fixes that. There isn't a, a path of philosophy of moral improvement, a, a system of self-denial that gets rid of that thing. And so... 
we come to the same place before, well, I guess people suck. <laughs> but we have to take those questions seriously. Um, because when we, as believers, we come to people and we step into the deepest tragedies of their lives and they ask those questions, we do not get to set foot in there with feelings of entitlement or superiority. People will get angry with us and they will ask, who are you? Tell me how your program is going to fix this. How are you going to bring these dead stones back to life? And I can't and you can't, but I do come as a witness that there is one who can. God has answered Nehemiah and our prayers in that matter. God came. He emptied himself out. If you remember our verses of the week, this, this verse in Philippians, I, I told you I love it because it's the truth. He took the form of a servant. He was born as a man. He emptied himself. He became obedient to the point of death even on a cross. And, and so Jesus, God himself, he answered the radical selfishness of the human condition. He answered the separation between himself and us and responded with a life of and a death of radical selflessness. God restored that relationship. He has offered to restore our relationship to him and by extension and through that our relationships to one another. He lived a life that we could not live and loved with a love that we cannot match so that we could have both the life and love that we can never in and of ourselves deserve. And that is why we call it the good news. That is gospel. It's not a self-help program. It's not a philosophy. It's an announcement of a completed work performed on our behalf by the mighty hand of God. And so if we look back at those, those, those three observations from the text, they, they come together in a whole new light. We talk about diverse people coming together in God's purpose, and, and we read the gospel proclamation in Galatians saying, those who are in Christ, who have put on Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. All those distinctions, those barriers between people dissolve because we become one in Christ. When we talk about the world not being able to understand God's purpose, not being able to accept God's purpose because it reveals truth. Well, God revealed himself in the person of Jesus and declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we do naturally direct our petitions to God because when we look at the gospel, we don't get to bring anything to it. We don't get to bring our racial or ancestral pedigree. We don't get to bring our money. We don't get to bring our accomplishments because by God's metric, by God's yardstick, because that's the logic we're using, not the human metric, where I can say, oh, my money, oh, my good deeds, in God's logic, in God's calculus, they're pretensions. They don't matter. There's nothing I can do that in my radical selfishness earns the radical selflessness of Christ. But it has been offered us all the same. And so the offer, the implicit offer of this revelation stands to this day. Our hearts remain marred by who we are and what we've done. And, and even those of us who've believed and turned and been saved, we will still out of habit put on our old selves that we've been freed from and, and act in old ways. But when we, but our hearts, for those of us who, who haven't made that confession, who haven't come before Christ and accepted Him as Lord and Savior, our hearts still sit in our chest like those burned and ruined stones on the field outside of Jerusalem. And there is one who can bring them to life. If we will 
unlock those locked doors we live behind, if we will smash through the glass windows of that bubble, and if we will run, if we will pursue the God who has been pursuing us and be received into the transformative embrace of Christ. I want to, uh, to leave you with the encouraging uh, and comfort of the Apostle Peter that, that we read earlier, but perhaps now in this moment may come to you with a different or more informed force. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am in laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Holy God, Thank you for reaching down, for transgressing every boundary we've put between ourselves and one another, for reaching across an unbridgeable gap with a message of love and reconciliation. God, we wrong one another. We wrong one another in your name. We build systems to make ourselves feel righteous religiously and secularly. But we have no righteousness beyond what you've given us, what you've imputed to us through your sacrifice. Thank you for giving us new hearts that are capable of responding to your love, that have the capacity to join in your purpose and love each other. God, continue the good work you began in our hearts, in these new hearts you've given us. Help us to reach out to one another and to the world and model just a fraction of the love you've shown us. And when we fail, and God, we will help us to point to you to that perfect love, to that unfailing love that we can only imperfectly mirror. God, help us to lift you up and lower ourselves before you because you are worthy of all our praise and adoration. And I pray these things to you, God. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.